beginning a new series on the Gospel of Mark today, a new sermon series, and we will be reading and looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20 today. Beginning with Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting in casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear and make our hearts responsive, that we might embrace the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our series on the book of Mark, just a little background on the gospel of Mark. Uh, there are four gospels in the New Testament that chronicle the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, Mark is the shortest of the four. Um, For that reason, for many centuries in the church, Mark was a little bit um, underappreciated. He was not the one that was quoted the most or referred to the most by uh, church leaders and found in sermons uh, over over really uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was sort of thought, well, he, uh, the others uh, give a much fuller account of Jesus, and so we're going to go ahead and spend our time looking at those Gospels more than the Gospel of Mark. Well, then, maybe a century ago or more, uh, that opinion began to shift as people realized that Mark was likely the earliest Gospel, the earliest account written of Jesus, 
and that the other, uh, other Gospels, some of the other Gospels, actually relied on Mark and Mark's sources to uh, create their Gospels. And so he received the love uh, from uh, modern contemporary scholarship and preaching. The, uh, the, reason Mark, the reason why the, the name Mark is uh, affixed to his gospel is because, and this was very early attestation in the church uh, by multiple sources, that this came through John Mark. Uh, John Mark mentioned in the book of Acts, and that John Mark received uh, what he received regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ through Peter. And so it is part of our Bible because of the apostolic connection to uh, Simon Peter. And again, this, um, this is something that is attested to very early uh, in the life of the church. When we look at internal and external evidence, uh, there's a good chance that this book was written about the time of Nero. And as you know... About Nero, if you know anything about the time of Nero, the Christians were suffering greatly, and it was costly to be a Christian. And the gospel was written in part uh, with that background as a shot in the arm for Christians undergoing trials in their faith. And we'll see that as we work through uh, the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark is assumed to have as its primary audience Gentiles, not Jews. You have, for instance, the gospel of Matthew which appears to have as its primary uh, audience, immediate audience, were Jews. Uh, but here is a gospel to Gentiles. Gospel, the gospel of Mark is to the point. Uh, its emphasis is on action, uh, with descriptions of action, with action words. And the gospel of Mark has as its pointed focus, who is Jesus and what are you going to do with him? And similarly, what is reality? This is reality, and how are you going to grapple with this reality? How will you respond? It's not just information. It's not just history. It's not just interesting information. Who is Jesus Christ, and what will I do with him? And so today we're going to look at four points in this section, 1 through 20. The first is God coming in the flesh is announced as good news. Secondly, that's, that's verses 1 through 11. Secondly, in verses 12 and 13, Jesus overcoming Satan and sin is a demonstration of why he is good news. Thirdly, verses 14 and 15, Jesus proclaims himself as good news and calls for the proper response. And then finally, in verses 16 through 20, how will you respond to Jesus? So, Firstly, God coming in the flesh is announced as good news. This is the account of the gospel. The gospel means good news. In the original setting, good news, the gospel was related to the uh, proclamation, the news that would come of military victory. And so the good news would come uh, in announcing a victory. And later it was broadened. Uh, It might be, for instance, uh, the good news of the celebration of the birthday of an emperor. And so we have here in this text, at the very beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is good news of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. And we find here that this good news is premeditated by God. It's God's news to humanity. It's not something that happens off the cuff. It's not a last-minute decision. Because we see here in verse 2, right out of the gate, this prophecy of Isaiah, a prophecy that happened uh, sometime uh, between the, um, the 7th and 8th century B.C. Um, very clearly, that's when Isaiah lived. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So prophesied Isaiah, and it came to pass. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, in this world, and that is the subject matter of the good news. For all the discussion, and rightly so, of the message of Jesus Christ, for the teaching of Jesus Christ, we need to understand at the outset what Mark is portraying to us is that Jesus is God in the flesh. You know, when the CEO shows up, you know, from out of town uh, to the office, it's not necessarily good news, is it? When the boss shows up at the job site, it's not necessarily good news. But God comes in the flesh, and it is the greatest possible good news for you and for me. He is called the Son of God in verse 1. And then we find out what this term Son of God means with greater clarity In verse 2, because this voice crying in the wilderness prepares the way for the Lord. Now, in the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, the word Lord is very specific in the Hebrew. It is Yahweh. It is the one true God. John the Baptist has come in fulfillment of the prophecy in preparing the way of the one true God. And so John is the herald of of this good news. We think of Herald of News, right? Our our local newspaper is called the News Herald. John the Baptist is that herald. And in the space of time, fullness of time, John was revealed. John the Baptizer. And so John prepared for Jesus' coming, not only with his words, but with this baptism that he was calling people to. It was in preparation for the coming of the Son of God, coming of the Lord. He did it by way of calling on people to repent. And they came to him from Jerusalem and to Judea, and he was at the Jordan River, uh, and he would, they would come confessing their sins. They would come admitting their sins. They would come repenting of their sins. Lord, forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned against you. I'm confessing my sins. I'm turning from my sins. And they would receive baptism as a sign of their repentance. This was what the baptism of John the baptism was about. By baptizing them, they were not forgiven. They were forgiven as they came confessing, and this baptism was associated with repentance. Now, at the time of John the Baptist, there were ritual washings that the people engaged in, lots of ritual washings. Um, Similar terminology was utilized, but there was one major difference, and that was as people 
uh, came and would wash themselves. And there was, again, the idea of cleansing uh, that was signified by this washing. They would wash themselves, you know, kind of like a cat. You know, they'd go in, they would go in, they would wash themselves. But not so with John the Baptist. They would come to John into the wilderness to receive baptism. And so what you have here was John in the wilderness in the manner of the Old Testament prophets, not in the cities, not in the towns, again, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah in the wilderness, wearing the garb of some of the prophets, clothed in camel's hair, verse 6. He ate locust and wild honey. Sounds strange to us, but that was actually not that strange to them. It was in accordance with the Old Testament dietary laws. These were considered clean. And uh, we think eating bugs is kind of unusual. If you go to a very nice restaurant, uh, cutting-edge restaurant, you might find yourselves uh, with uh, something with ants on the, uh, the menu, uh, sprinkling on your... Didn't you know that? Uh, I watch the food shows. That's in. And, uh, and so across, uh, across the world, many, many cultures eat insects. And so he was out in the wilderness with this good source of nutrients and protein... Um, And people flocked to him to repent. Why? Because this, in the work of God on planet Earth, was preparation for the coming, for the coming of the Lord. This was a paving of the way for the Lord's coming. Now, in a negative way, we think, of the, uh, we think of military action and we think of the softening of targets. And I'm, uh, I'm personally concerned that this is what's going on in Ukraine now. You've got a certain number of Russian troops softening things up. And then there are greater numbers of troops that could come in. I don't know. I'm not a strategist. But I know this can happen. There's an initial softening of a target and then a taking of that target in an In a positive way, John the Baptist came in advance, and God worked in advance, where was this movement of repentance in anticipation of the one who was to come. What was it that John preached? Verses 7 and 8, and he preached, saying, After me comes He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At this time, only a servant would untie, would do this action of untying a sandal. In fact, for Jews, only Gentile servants would do that. They wouldn't even request Jewish servants to do that. And John says... As, as much as what's going on, you know, as amazing as things were, you know, John had gone viral, had lots of followers. He says, the one who comes after me, I can't hold a candle to him. Why? Because I'm just baptizing you with this water. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And why can Jesus do that? Because Jesus is God. And he is able to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And what we have in Jesus' baptism here, portrayed in verses 9 and following, was the dramatic culmination of the arrival of God's good news. The preparatory action is coming to a conclusion. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is a dramatic event, uh, to put it lightly. And in the, in the language, in that very active language of the Gospel of Mark, the heavens were torn open. Uh, there, is a, there is a dramatic occurrence. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, God the Father, calls out and says, You are my beloved Son, in whom, with you I am well pleased. This is, again, the culmination of the preparation of John the Baptist. Here in Jesus Christ's baptism, sort of a coming out of the Son of God. Now, Jesus didn't become the Son of God at the baptism. He was acknowledged as the Son of God by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. Three persons of God. One God, three persons. Mystery to that, but the Bible clearly portrays that. Jesus Christ, from all eternity was the Son of God. I should say this, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was the Son from all eternity. Before, he clothed himself with a human body and a human soul. When he did so, he was still truly God and truly man. Son of God, acknowledged by God the Father and by the Holy Spirit at this time. And people try to grapple with this and explain it away. I know um, when I've been in discussions with Muslims, sometimes they misunderstand. And, you know, one of the common misconceptions that Muslims have in terms of the Trinity is the Trinity is God the Father and Mary and Jesus Christ. And Jesus is God's son because the Father impregnated Mary in a naturalistic way. And they're rightly upset about that. That is not what the Trinity teaches in the Bible. The, the concept of the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that he had that Son relationship with the Father from all eternity. And there is this communion and fellowship, a oneness between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. But what's happening here? The Son of God is announced to the world and is present. If you look at the way the baptism of Jesus is presented in the rest of Scripture, this is presented as a climactic event, the announcement of the Son of God to humanity. On the other hand, we have Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll say about the Son of God as well, that doesn't mean that he's God. It means he's, he's kingly. You know, he's, a, he's, a, he's got a kingly Son of God. Sometimes Son of God is used of, of royalty. But again, if you go back to Mark 1, uh, verse, verse 2 and verse 3, it says that John the Baptist prepared the way for Yahweh. For God. This is his announcement to humankind that the great good news has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we could spend a lot of time unpacking baptism. Wouldn't that be fun? We could talk about baptism. We could talk about the Baptist view and the Presbyterian view and the Catholic view and the Lutheran view. And we could go into great detail. And I could spend the whole rest of the sermon and a couple more talking about that. But What is the purpose of the event of baptism and Jesus' baptism here in the Gospel of Mark? Mark is to the point, and he's saying in this dramatic event, 
The good news has come in the person of Jesus Christ in no uncertain terms. And Jesus overcoming Satan in this next scene and overcoming sin is a demonstration of why he is good news. The Spirit immediately, this is verse 12, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this account of the uh, temptation of Christ in the wilderness is very short, just a couple of verses. But what we find here is he is tested in the wilderness, like the Israelites were tested in the wilderness. And unlike the Israelites who were tested in the wilderness, uh, Jesus passed the test. And, And notice it wasn't an accident that Jesus went out into the wilderness. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was tested and he passed the test, and it was difficult. It was not fun. It was not like a fun camping trip. There were wild animals out there, it says. And this is to indicate the physical danger that he was in. And it required angels to minister to him. And we learn from the other Gospels that this testing was intense, and yet in it he did not sin. Also, he was tempted by Satan like Adam was. And yet, unlike Adam, he did not sin. So if the baptism of Jesus was the ultimate preparation for the good news, then the temptation of Christ was an indication of why he was good news, because he and he alone could overcome sin and save the rest of us sinners who sinned. Thirdly, Jesus proclaims himself as good news and calls for the proper response, verses 14 and 15. So we have here again with, the, uh, with this just passing comment about the arrest of John the Baptist here in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we find then that the preparation for this good news is over, and now the good news has arrived. Verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, at the outset, we need to to notice one unexpected thing, and that is Jesus came into Galilee. He didn't go into the capital. So Jesus had been down in Jerusalem, Judea. And he didn't go there to begin his ministry. He went to Galilee. Galilee was in the northern part of Israel. Galilee of Gentiles, it was called. I know if we think of the United States, every section of the United States thinks they're wonderful, you know, uh, and the others not so much. But, you know, Judah was the upper crust, you know, religious upper crust. And those Galileans, there's a lot of uh, uh, Gentile influence. But Jesus... That's where Jesus began his ministry. And Jesus summarizes the good news in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. It is not an accident. It is not haphazard. It is premeditated by God. It's happening exactly on time and on cue. This is a kingdom that is being announced. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. I was reminded of a comment of Richard Pratt. Richard Pratt was one of my professors in seminary. He spoke at one of our Bible conferences several years ago. And um, Robert Croft and I got a chance to hear him again at a presbytery retreat uh, last month. 
And um, he reminded me of this illustration, some of you will remember it, from several years ago, where he was talking about how we as Americans respond to kings. We don't like kings. Uh, we're not real happy with kings. And he, he uh, referred to the state of Virginia, their flag. And on their flag, they have a uh, picture of a woman, um, and, and she's got her foot on a dead body. And uh, the crown has come off the head of the, the guy, uh, the dead body. And the emblem says, Sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. And he said, that's what we do in Virginia. If you come in here as a king, we'll sick our women on you. And uh, we'll show you. And, um, and that's how we respond to kings. But the kingship in and of itself, is not a bad idea. It's a good idea. And the the people of God, the Israelites, at the time of Christ's coming, were anticipating that there would be this king who would come. And it would be a dramatic entrance and breakthrough, and it would change things radically. The problem was they were thinking way too small. And we're going to learn about this in the Gospel of Mark, about what this kingdom of God is alike. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king. The kingdom of God is at hand or is near or as the as some of you have the English Standard Version Bible, the text note says has come near. And so this particular word is in reference not to uh, temporal nearness, but spatial nearness. In other words, it's not that the, that the kingdom has come in time. He, he made that reference earlier, but now he's saying the kingdom has come near in proximity. Why? Because he is the kingdom. He is the king. Okay, he's more than the king. He is the good news. The kingdom has appeared. But he is the king. He is the king. And there is a kingdom. And it is good news. And how will you respond? To the arrival of the king, the son of God, Well, there's an appropriate response. We see this beginning in verse 15, that we are to repent and believe in the good news. And John, again, laid the groundwork of this repentance that was to take place. The kingdom is about the undoing of the work of Satan and restoring to the world the world to its rightful order, its wonder, its splendor, as we talked about last week, better than brand new. Christ's kingdom is about overcoming the penalty of sin that you deserve, that I deserve, by repentance, the forgiveness of sins. We'll find in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus Christ came to be a ransom for many, to give his life as a ransom for many, for those who would repent and place their faith in him. Repentance, it's simply acknowledging, first of all, that you have sinned. There is sin and you've sinned. You might say, Pastor, I just walked in the church today. I don't know much about the Bible. I said to you, well, what are some things that you do that are wrong? You do some things that are wrong? And the Bible says that God has placed in your heart, in everybody's heart, an awareness of right and wrong. Now, we we can repress that, but we know there are things that we do that are right and wrong. And it's not just a matter of some way we treat people. 
These are sins against God. God has said we are not to treat people these ways. We are to treat people certain ways. And so we acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin. And we turn from our sins. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can he cleanse us, sinners though we are? Because Jesus is the sinless one. And Jesus did what we couldn't do. He defeated Satan. He defeated the temptation. He uh, did not succumb to it. He lived the perfect life and he died as a ransom for you and me so that you might be forgiven through repentance and faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, as the one who's come to do this for you. The kingdom has come. The good news has come. He is your king. He is your Savior. We'll find that Jesus is the servant king. He is the suffering servant, and he's come for those who would trust in his ransom. This is sweet and good news for those who have ears to hear. So how are you going to respond to the arrival of Jesus? Admit your sin, confess it, repent, and trust in him. And then secondly, we see that we are to respond by following Jesus when he calls. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Jesus calls us to follow him, to be in an active relationship with him. These first disciples were normal people. They were not uh, religious leaders. They weren't seminary students. They were normal people. Um, You know, when I meet people for the first time, um, I really hate it. Uh, You know, I'm on a plane somewhere sitting next to somebody, and they talk to me, and they say, finally we get to, and I, I prolong it as long as I can. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Wall comes up. You can cut the tension with a knife. The fun is sucked out of the air. You know, they don't know what to do. What do you do with this pastor? You don't have to be a normal person to follow Jesus, but it helps. Okay. So you don't have to be a religious person to follow Jesus and to be a religious leader. You know, in the day of Jesus, the rabbis, the teachers, if you wanted to follow a rabbi, to learn from a rabbi, you would have to apply. Some of you are applying for school right now, right? You have to apply and you have to be accepted, not Jesus. Jesus was the one who asked, come follow me. It was a command and they followed immediately. It's interesting when you look at Mark again, that this encounter with Uh, Simon, uh, Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, uh, again, immediately they followed. Um, Some of the other Gospels uh, have more in-depth interaction between Jesus and the the, uh, disciples, as he calls them. But Mark, again, is focused on let's boil it down to the component part that is most important, and that is 
Jesus said, follow me. And they followed. They followed immediately. Now, I will say this. Some views of Christian discipleship uh, take this a little bit too literally. I know some views of Christian discipleship, it's sort of like, well, if you're really a disciple of Jesus Christ and you're really following him, you know, you're going to give up your job. You're going to go to seminary. You're going to go to the mission field. And that's fine. God calls some people to do that. But for the most part, God doesn't call us to kind of wrap our lives around an individual and travel across the country, right? So you follow Jesus wherever he leads you. Jesus didn't come as a loner. Notice right after his announcement as the Son of God to all humanity, after he goes into the wilderness, what does he do? He begins to bring people to himself. He begins to gather people to himself. He wasn't this lone miracle worker out there going shazam and, and, you know, amazing people and even teaching as a loner. He was was somebody that was gathering people together, and that's one of the reasons why we're here today. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. It's not simply to sort of gaze at your navel in your bedroom, uh, which you can gaze at your Bible in your bedroom, and that's helpful. You should do that, but... But we gather together as the people of God, as the disciples came together, as they fellowshiped, as they were part of the, the followers of Jesus Christ, and they came together for that purpose. Being in an active relationship with Jesus means that you take on the kingdom mission. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Again, Mark focuses on the calling of these specific disciples at the outset of Jesus' ministry. And their vocation becomes a metaphor for the mission that he calls all of us to. They were fishermen. Now, we know a few things about fishing here in Panama City, don't we? I mean, some of you have even been in the the business, in the industry. You know how to catch fish. Um, And like our area, you know, our area is beautiful. You get out on the bay, in the Gulf, it's beautiful. The Sea of Galilee was a beautiful place. The Sea of Galilee had all kinds of uh, ports, 16 fishing ports. It had a thriving uh, industry in fishing. And so um, here's the description. I'll go into a little detail. This is uh, by Mark uh, James R. Edwards. He's a commentator. He gives us the background for what this was like when Jesus encountered the disciples. The little harbor of Peter, as it is known today, is commended as the site of the call of the four fishermen because of the small waterfall that plunges into the lake where fishermen could wash their nets and because warm springs entering the lake were attracting Schools of fish in the winter and spring, promising rewarding catches. Nor was the catch consumed by local markets alone. It should be remembered that fish and not meat was the staple food of the Greco-Roman world. Fish from the Sea of Galilee were exported and prized in distant Alexandria and Egypt, in Antioch and Syria. That fishermen in Galilee competed in the larger Mediterranean market testifies to their skill, prosperity, and ingenuity and probably to their command of Greek, which was the international language of business and culture. The fishermen whom Jesus called were scarcely indigent day laborers. In order to survive in their market league, they needed to be, and doubtlessly were, shrewd and successful 
businessmen. I think if you look at, for instance, James and John, you find that they were in a family business. There were servants involved in this. As far as the actual method of catching fish, Simon and Andrew were catching, casting a net into the lake in verse 16. According to Mark, the word for casting a net means to throw around. It designates a circular net measuring some 20 feet in diameter with heavy bars and metal of metal or rocks attached to the perimeter. With practice and dexterity, the casting net could be handled by a single fisherman who either standing in a boat or, as in the case here, wading out into the water, gathered the net on his arm and heaved it forcefully outward in a circular motion so that it would land like a parachute on the water, trapping fish as it sank to the bottom. Fish were retrieved by the fishermen, diving to the bottom, gathering the weights of the net together and dragging the net and its catch to shore. Sounds familiar to some of you, doesn't it? So with this background, it makes it clear that the coming good news of the kingdom is going to be good news for people. People would be a major focus of it. People repenting and believing in Jesus, the good news, and willing to follow Jesus where he led. And notice, the, again, the English Standard Version that we use translates it, I will make you become fishers of men. Some of you, if you're like me, you remember the little Sunday school song, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. It's more literally, I will make you become fishers of men. You know, these guys may have been great fishermen, uh, but they hadn't learned to fish for men, fish for people. You know, when I go out in the, in the Gulf and fish by myself, the fish aren't there. When I go out into the bay, the fish aren't there. When I go out with some of you who know how to fish, the fish are there. Why is that? Well, it's because you know the seasons, you know the times, you know the tides, you know the fish, you know what they're doing, and I'm still just a newbie. And so the, uh, the disciples were experts in fishing, They knew what that meant, and Jesus said, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. They have much to learn. And so that's their stated mission, and that's our stated mission. It's a pro-people mission. Now, you might say, I'm not a people person, pastor. I'm not a people person. Well, I'll say this. You can't be a hermit and fulfill the mission that Jesus has called all of us to. You might not be a people person, but you've got to figure out some way to be part of Jesus' mission of not only following him, but calling others to follow Jesus and to experience Jesus as good news. Or you might be a people person and you might just love hanging out with people, but you've got to get to the point where you're helping them follow Jesus and not just hang out with you, right? So that's our mission as individuals and as a church. You know, for some of you, this relationship with Jesus where you follow him can happen right now. Right now. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, walked on the Sea of Galilee. And one of the ways that he continues this relationship with us is through his word. We read his word. We follow it. The spirit of God that descended at the time of the baptism of Christ. In our lives as we believe in Jesus, he helps us with this relationship. Uh, So you say, I I don't really know, Pastor. There's so much about believing in Jesus and following Jesus that I don't know. Believe me, the disciples didn't know either. 
They had so much to learn. And all of them continued to the end of their lives in following Jesus, except for one. And so you will learn in time. Remember, I've mentioned this before in a sermon about uh, growing up in South Florida. There was a controversy, a theological controversy at the time called the Lordship Debate. And the question was put out like this. Do you have to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, or can you just receive Jesus as Savior? In other words, can you receive Jesus as your Savior, Savior of your sins, but not have him as your authority? And so um, being the pestering um, high school student, I would go to all of our uh, chapel leaders that would come in, and I would ask them, hey, do you have to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord or just Savior? I was that kid. And um, one guy gave me the best answer. He said, you receive Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Savior. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is a lot of things. You receive him for whoever he is. And so we'll find out as we go through the the Gospel of Mark, we'll be introduced to who Jesus is. We'll see how different people react to him and respond to him. And so my challenge is for you today. Right now, you can receive Jesus as you repent of your sins, you trust in him. By the way, repentance of sins doesn't mean that automatically you become perfect and you never sin again. When we confessed our sins earlier today, some of you were like, yeah, I've confessed the sin numerous times. It's still a challenge. But the great news is that that's part of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. One day when Jesus returns or you go to be with him, you'll never struggle with that. But until then, he is actually freeing you from the grip of sin. And some of that happens quickly and some of that takes time. And that's part of the good news. Isn't that wonderful to be free of that? So you repent, you believe, and you follow Jesus. And then there are others here. You've been following Jesus for a long time. And so let's go back to the beginning and not make it too complicated, right? So repent. You've got sin to repent of. Trust in Jesus as the savior of your sins and follow him wherever he leads you. Let's not make it too complicated. Will you follow him and will you help other people follow him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, for his arrival in space and time, the son of God, that he is the good news. We pray, Father, that we will trust in him that we will enter into a relationship with him and with you through faith in Jesus and that we would follow him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as a result,